Um, so, community. I want to read a quote to you from one of my favorite writers, Eugene Peterson. He says this, I didn't come to the conviction easily, but finally there is no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion and embrace of community. Community, not the highly vaulted individualism of our culture, is a setting in which Christ is at play. Pretty strong statement about the, the value of community as a church. He's literally saying, I don't think as an individual you can be what you're meant to be for God. You can grow the way you're meant to grow. Others will grow the way they're meant to grow. Community is absolutely necessary for us to honor God and be what he wants us to be. And I agree with you. Uh, but community is tough. Kind of a tough thing to do a lot of times. I've been a pastor for quite a while, and, and I would say that's just a constant kind of battle within a church to, to figure out how to help people form a community that is the kind of community scripture describes. It's tough. Uh, a couple of stories I want to tell you, real quick ones, about some experiences that I've had in the church. So one occurred back when we were building this section of the building. So back in the children's section, when I first came here, was our sanctuary. And, uh, and as this was getting built, we had a group of people that kind of got together to raise the funds, to help raise the funds to get this building to happen. And so the, most of that group was an older group of people in the church who had gotten together and they were working on how to present this to the church and how to contact people and all these things to get the funds raised. Well, one of the things they did was they put together a PowerPoint presentation, kind of the history of the church, to present on a Sunday morning. And they'd asked me if I would help them put it together and put music in it and those things. And I said, sure, just bring me what you want and I'll put it together, which they did. Well, the music they brought me was a little bit, well, it, it felt a little cheesy. You know, it felt a little outdated. It, it felt kind of like 70s praise music kind of music. And... And I told them when they brought it, I said, you know, this may be okay for first service, may get by. I'm not sure it's your second service this is going to work very well. I'm not sure you might want to give me some other music and I'll make up two versions. But it was their presentation, their thing, and they went away and thought about it and they came back and said, you know, we decided actually we'd like to leave it the way it is. We, we really like the music. We think it fits the message we're trying to communicate. Matter of fact, we think it would be good for people in the second service to hear it. We'd like that music in there. And I said, sure, that's fine. It's your presentation. No problem. So I put that all together. We showed it on Sunday morning. At that time, the second service, our second service uh, band was largely college students at that time. Um, matter of fact, it's a lot of the same band that was playing Connection was the, playing on Sunday morning for the second service. So... A lot of them were in there and saw kind of this presentation at the end of the first service. And so when I was kind of passing through the room where they got ready in the morning, several of them stopped me and said, there's no way you're playing that in the second service, are you? And I said, well, actually, yeah. Here's the reason I'm, I think it'll be okay, because this group put it together. They have a reason for doing it that way, and it's theirs. So we should just let them do it. And they continued arguing, there's just no way that that can be played in second service. I mean, that's just so bad. You just can't do that. And I said, well, let me... And so I, I sat down with them for the few minutes we had, and I said, well, think about this with me for a minute. 
I regularly, regularly hear from older people in our church about why the music that's being played in second service isn't good. I regularly hear it from them. I'm regularly told by them why that's even kind of spiritually not good, you know, at times. So I'll hear from some groups of people why this is bad. Not all older people, but some groups I will hear why this is bad. And I'm often defending why that is an okay thing, why I actually believe that is this diversity in music is a good thing for us as a church. So regularly I'm arguing and, and actually arguing for them to embrace it even though it's not theirs. So I said, so I'm going to leave the decision to you guys. You can change the music if you want. But I think you ought to think about that same thing. Can you embrace what's not yours? Because it's theirs. And they're equally apart, and this is their thing. And I walked out of there feeling kind of proud of myself. Like, you know, I gave them this little lesson, and they all kind of walk out of this real good. Came into the, that service, and sure enough, the music was changed. Uh, they put different music in and decided it just wasn't okay. So that's one story. And, and one thing that stood out to me in both groups I was talking to was both groups, to some degree, these were all kind, caring, committed to the church, really spiritually mature group of people on both sides of this discussion. So this wasn't some immature group of people. Both committed followers of Christ in both groups. But both, to some degree, thought of the other group in some ways as being spiritually... Um, a little bit weaker. In some ways, the younger group I was talking, in this case it was younger or older, but the younger group I was talking to to some degree kind of viewed the older group as a little stuck in the past, a little stuck in tradition, and missing out on something spiritually they needed to be more relevant, to be more passionate in their worship. They kind of got stuck in tradition. It was kind of their view. When I talked to the older group, their view was, the younger group, was all worried about feeling. That's what they're worried about, what feels right and feels good and feels relevant. And they're missing sometimes the theological content and the, you know, the words that are supposed to be in there and those kind of things. And that was kind of their view. It was, again, not that these are bad people, but maybe weaker in this area, and that's why we need to help them out. Both groups, to some degree, thought they were helping a weaker group out a little bit. You know? So second story. So years ago, a youth pastor in church in Ohio, and... Had a youth group, came into this church. Youth group was mainly kids whose parents attended the church, you know, and kind of your average church youth group. Um, I was only there a couple years, but about six months into being there, a girl started attending our youth group um, who just was a friend of someone in there. And she lived in this huge mobile home park on the edge of town. And it was huge. It was almost its own little town. Um, and she came to know Christ, became passionate in her desire to follow Christ, and she started inviting friends from this trailer park where she lived. And before long, she went beyond inviting. She very well told them they were coming. I mean, she was bringing groups. Before long, she asked if I could get transportation there because she had some money. And we would send a church bus and she would fill it, and we would bring it. I mean, you know, the, the youth group doubled in size largely through this girl bringing kids from this mobile home park. But this group of kids as a rule, I mean, in general, was a kind of rougher background group of kids. Many didn't kind of know the Christian lingo, didn't kind of know the rules of church and those kind of things. So, again, no problem. They're a great group of kids. I loved having them there. And actually, a lot of our kids got along with them just fine. And it really wasn't a big problem. But it was a great group. But I started hearing from adults in the church during that time. 
continually hear from adults about this group of kids and their worry about this group of kids who was hanging around with their kids. Matter of fact, the pastor's wife, senior pastor's wife, came to talk to me at one point and was kind of worried about those kids and the influence they were having on our kids. Um, and, and the kind of view was because these kids, even though we care about them and love them, they're a weaker group. You know, these differences are a sign of kind of weakness in them. And we kind of need to be careful about protecting this stronger group of kids from this weaker group of kids because of these differences. Now, the differences really had little to do with the behavior problems or anything. I mean, both groups of kids were doing just fine. They wouldn't have a problem. But there's a feeling that these kids are different. And that difference kind of scares us and worries us, you know? And so we're a little worried about that. Can you find a way to kind of guard the kids from that? Had to have many discussions with adults about how these are all our kids, not them and your kids. So just two examples. In, in both, I think everybody would go, yeah, that's, you know, people need to figure out how to make these minor things and these silly things not matter, right? We need to, we need to set those things aside and say, get over it, right? And, and we all kind of agree on that. Community means somehow we have to embrace some of these differences and quit treating them like such a big deal. That's a tough thing. Now, I can use those two examples, and we'd all go, you know, of course shouldn't be that way. But which ones are ours? They, they're changing all the time. You know, the ones that we would say, those are the differences that, yeah, those are the ones that make me uncomfortable. Those are the ones I don't know how to connect in and how to get along with. What are the differences that, that are tough for you? That make, you know, there's a lot we'd say, we look at another group and go, oh, how horrible. How horrible that they can't accept those kind of distinctions and those kind of differences. But what are yours? What are the ones that you would struggle with and be uncomfortable with? And if, it was, if this group was largely people of that kind of people who have those interests or whatever the difference is, would that be a group I could connect to and truly find community with? And I'd say if we look honestly, all of us have some of those things. So those two stories. Well, how does 1 Corinthians 12 inform those stories is what I want to talk about a little. We could add our own in there. How does it inform those stories? Before I talk about that, though, I want to make sure we're kind of paying attention to what this original group of people that received this letter, what Paul was saying to them, and make sure before we kind of stick ourselves in there, we know what he was saying to this original group. So Paul is writing to this church at Corinth. And it seems like he has kind of been teaching about worship up to this point in chapter 12. Several chapters before, he seems to be kind of trying to help them understand what proper worship is and how to worship God rightly. And then in chapter 12, we start talking about spiritual gifts. And so you'll hear in chapter 12 this diversity of spiritual gifts that God has given. Then chapter 13, the love chapter, everybody kind of knows. In chapter 13, it's still talking about spiritual gifts, but the idea that for these spiritual gifts to be lived out rightly, they have to be driven by love. Love has to be at the core of them. And if not, they just become an irritating noise. They lose their back. And then in 14, they start talking about a real specific problem they seem to have. And the specific problem seemed to be that they had taken this one gift, speaking in tongues, and they kind of made it dud, you know, and he starts addressing some of those issues. But most commentators seem to agree that really when you look at this larger teaching through worship and spiritual gifts, Paul is really trying to instruct them and, and correct the wrong thinking with them. And the wrong thinking was about what it means to be spiritual. 
and he's trying to help them think about it a little differently than they've normally thought about it. What does it mean to be spiritual, to be spiritually mature, to have it together as a Christian? And he's kind of redefining some things for them. So we come to chapter 12. And I'm not going to read all of chapter 12 to you. I'm just going to pull a few passages out. But I want to kind of walk you through it a little bit as we kind of get to it. Because as Paul's talking about this diversity of spiritual gifts that God's given, I, I want you to think about um, why is this so important? Why does this matter so much? Because honestly, it's a lot easier to grow a church if you kind of are more homogenous. In fact, if you read books on, on church growth, church growth experts, they'll pretty well tell you. If you can form a more homogenous group, a group that has a lot of common interests, kind of so, social economic similarities, different things, your church will grow faster. It just will. We are attracted to sameness. We just are. And we all say, no, I like diversity. Certain diversity. We're attracted to sameness. It's more comfortable. Difference is often kind of threatening. Um, and just kind of works easier. You know, things grow faster. People come better. If we kind of keep it homogenous. But, Paul seems to be speaking about something different. He actually seems to say that diversity is, is something incredibly valuable that God actually wants to be a part of this church. He wants it there. He, he intentionally put it there. There's something about it that has great value. So he starts making this case, I think, in chapter 12. In verse 4 through 6. He, he starts, I think, by building a foundation for what he's going to talk about. This foundation is that he, he kind of builds it on the Trinity. He talks about God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And he, he almost starts painting this picture of these different roles that they have. So already this foundation, if you look at God himself, God, these three persons of the Godhead, unique roles in some way, difference, yet so intimately bound together, so together, so connected, they literally are one being. Diversity with incredible unity. So we start the story. 7 through 12. And then he starts giving this list of spiritual gifts. All these different gifts within the church that have been given. These abilities and these gifts, these roles that different people have in the church. And God's placed them in to fulfill these different roles. He's brought people to the church that will be in those roles with those gifts to accomplish those things for the church. But he ends in verse 11 with this. He says, all these are the work of one and the same spirit. And he gives, he gives them to each one just as he determines. Hear that? Just as he determines. God has given all these gifts. He's placed them in this place, in this church, in this group, to accomplish these purposes just as he determined. This is his design, the way it's all been put together. So this diversity of gifts is intentional and it's God ordained. Then in verses 12 through 13, so, so the diversity is from God. Then he quickly comes back and reminds us, but we all share something in common. We're not just a group of difference, right? There's sameness that's at the core of us, too. There is some sameness that's actually about it. So he comes back in verse 12 and says, The body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts, and though all the parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So, so he pulls out a couple of areas that were probably common sources of division among the people then, which were race, ethnicity, social status. So things that have continued on, well past them. 
They were things that became a source of division for them. And he says, even though those differences exist, those differences that you all know what it is to live in a society where we're all broken apart and strongly divided there because of these differences, you guys, when you come together, there's something different about you. You're not just a group with difference. You're a group now that has this incredible unity. Every one of you are in the same spirit, baptized in the same spirit. Every one of you are, you are unified into the body of Christ through God's spirit. You are one in the spirit. That, that's at the core, is part of your sameness. Don't forget that. You're different. God intentionally wants difference to be there. Difference isn't the whole story, though. Sameness is part of the story, too. I want to drive that home. And then in, in 14 through 20, it says, okay, you're unified in Christ. This is true of you. You're different, but you're unified. And because of that, something beautiful has been formed. That both are a necessary component of it. And that's where he talks about the fact, you know, if we were all a bunch of ears, well, what a crazy body that would be. If we were all a bunch of feet, what a crazy body that would be. And you all probably heard this passage before. He says, well, of course, that diversity is a necessary part of being a healthy body. But all those different parts have meaning because they're part of the same body, right? Sameness matters. Diversity matters. Driving that point home. As I read this, I got thinking about one of the one of the things I deal with often. Counseling is a big part of my job here at the church, and one of the things I deal with often are people coming to me about their marriage and talking with people about struggles in their marriage. A very common thing that I'm dealing with in marriage is these people who want to be connected. In a sense, they want to be a community—a little community of two people—but they want to be a community, a very tight-knitted, intimate, close community. And they're coming to me saying something's gotten in the way of that. We have a problem. We don't feel connected the way we want to feel connected. And often when they come to me, what they will say is, here's the problem. And the problem is often defined as, there's something between us that we're different about. And that different is divide, difference is dividing us. We're not connected the way we want to be connected. Um, and often when they come to me, what they're wanting me to do is to be a judge on that issue of difference. You're presenting the difference. Here's my side. Here's his or her side. And will you play judge for us and tell us which side is right? Because if you'll tell us which side is right, what do you think they hope for? If, if I'll say, well, okay, I think the husband's right in this case. He's right. What do you think the husband is hoping for if I'll tell him he's right? What comes out of that? She changed her mind, sure. She changed her mind, and then she'll come over to my side. And guess what we'll be? We'll be connected again. We'll be unified. We'll be a community of two. Because we have accomplished sameness. And at the core of that hope is, and really both people are fighting for it, not because they just always want to be right. They're often fighting for it because I don't like being disconnected from this person. I want to be connected. I, I want us to restore connection. But the only way I can imagine connection happening is if we're the same. On this issue and many issues. This goes along with all the different issues. The connection could only happen with sameness. So we will fight and battle to try and get the other to my side so that we can be the same. Sometimes I'll talk to people who they've kind of been just complying, going along with something, pretending they're agreeing, even though they don't. And eventually they just can't tolerate it anymore. You know, Because the reason they've been complying, the reason they've been going silent and hiding their real views, is because, again, the same belief. The only way we'll ever be connected is sameness. 
If there's difference, I don't know how to connect with difference. That's tough and scary and feels threatening, feels like it disconnects us. And, and it does for everybody, right? Difference is always a little more threatening than sameness. When I used to oversee small groups here in the church, one of the things I used to tell small group leaders all the time was, what does a group do when they first come together if they don't know each other well? What do you all do? You look for some common ground, right? Look for anything you have in common. So if someone says, I used to live in Oregon. Oh, I know somebody in Oregon one time. You know, one time I went through Oregon. That's a really pretty state. Or anything we can find with common ground, we jump all over, right? Well, it makes sense why we do that. Because that's the easiest way to connect us through things. And we will find it easily that way. And I used to tell small group leaders, help them. Give them some activities, discussions that help them find sameness. Because let them connect on the easy stuff right away. It's kind of scary at first when you don't know anybody, right? Let's find some easy ways to connect. But I also used to tell my small group leaders that if that's all you do, if forever you keep trying to make sameness the only way you can connect, you every time difference comes up, you guide away from it, you treat it like it's the enemy, you always do these activities to try and pull back the sameness, eventually your group will die. It does because that's just, it's just shallow. It's impossible to maintain forever because difference is there. It just exists. It's a lie to pretend that's, that we're all the same. It's just not true. And if we're going to go deeper and really connect more closely, we connect in sameness, but we've got to find a way to connect in difference too. I find the same is true with couples are married. Matter of fact, a lot of research backs that up. John Gottman is kind of the, the king of marriage research. Guys just done immense amounts of research on couples, immense amount of data. And one of the things he found that's interesting about married couples was the couples that marriages were heading in the wrong direction versus the couples that marriages seemed to be growing closer, more intimate. One of the things they found that was kind of the same in both groups is what they call perpetual conflicts. These areas of disagreement. They found just as many in the couples that were falling apart as the couples that were doing well. They found that really wasn't a way of determining which couple is going to have a happy marriage. Because they were just as different when they were doing bad as doing well. What he found was different between the two wasn't the number of perpetual areas of difference. What he found was different about the healthier ones was they didn't treat difference as this giant threat all the time. They still had kindness and respect and care for one another even though they were dealing with difference. Difference wasn't so threatening, it always had to be resolved, right? Difference actually can be a very good part of community, a good part of relationship. Matter of fact, I think it's a vital part of community and relationship. God put it there, He intends it to be there. We will not be what we're meant to be without it. We actually have to fight to include it, embrace it, make it a part of us. That doesn't mean pretending there's no difference, right? So we could say, well, we're not really different at all. Every difference will pretend it's not really a difference. That's not embracing difference. It's it. I get it. We're different. There are differences between all of us. Differences in lots of ways. That's okay. The difference doesn't have to end. It may feel threatening sometimes. It may feel like it will disconnect, but it doesn't have to always be true like the end. There's some difference, though, that I would argue actually is the end. See, diversity matters. Sameness matters, too. The problem is we get mixed up which is which, right? There's some sameness that actually matters. So, for instance, if I'm telling my wife, yeah, love you, committed to you. I kind of like the lady next door. I'd like to sleep with her once in a while, but you know, I'll be back. No big problem. So let's have a good marriage, right? My wife should fight that difference. My wife should say, that's a difference we're not going to agree on. And the reason we're not going to agree on that is because that is so fundamental to what a marriage is. 
That is the basis of our connection, the commitment we've made to one another, to be exclusive with one another in a way we're with nobody else. That is what marriage is. It's foundational to it. Violate that, you don't really have a marriage anymore. The problem is sometimes couples treat every difference like it's that kind of difference. You know, the example I use a lot about my wife and I is we, we have kind of a different pace of life. Just different. Uh, a running joke with my wife is, I do not understand when I get out of the car, like we're at a store and we get out to go in. You know, I can be at the door of the store and I'm looking back and she's still in the car. And I'm always like, what do you do in there? Is, is there a little, you know, group of people you meet with in there? You have some secret activity going on? What happens in there that I don't get? Because I don't know what I would do in there for that long. She's always like, what is your rush to get into the store? What's the big deal? Why are you moving at that pace? We don't match a lot of times in those things. Many, many things. Well, that could be a difference. We'd say we can't be together and have that difference. We could make it a source of constant. You know, my wife tends to shelter things when she shows up. I tend to be early to things. Um, her maiden name was Collins, so when she'll tell me she's going to be somewhere, one of my comments is, is that going to be Mangrove time or Collins time? because I just want to know which one I'm working with. Because you know? they're two very different times. And I just say, which one's right and which one's wrong? I don't care. They're just pretty minor things. If we made that a difference, that we can't be together without being unified on, we're in trouble. Because i got a feeling we're not changing our pace much. Now, now we've come a little closer over the years. We're never going to completely match on this. I don't care what we do. If that's necessary for us to be community, we're in trouble. We're just different. We really are. I just don't know that those are vital differences to resolve. Some differences are. And Paul seems to be saying to this group of people, there are differences that God has, God has injected into you. He has put there on purpose. He wants those to be a part of you. You have to learn to embrace those. Not to just tolerate them. To actually embrace them. To say they are good, they're part of God's plan, and we will not be what we're meant to be if we don't. And... There's a sameness you need to hold on to, too. It's not saying that nothing different matters. There's some differences that do matter. There's some sameness that is actually important. And that sameness is the fact that you are in the same God, that the same Spirit has baptized you into the same body. That being part of the body of Christ and following Him is vital to your life together. You have to hold on to that sameness and make it central. The problem is, when we make lesser things the thing, we actually take away from the main thing. It doesn't get much attention anymore, right? In fact, something beautiful about the body of Christ, when we're being what we ought to be, is that we would truly be an incredibly diverse group of people. Diverse in every way. We would be a diverse group of people who, who literally embrace all those differences, value them, treat them as if they matter. And, and our world would look at us and know there's something different. Because that would be different. That would be truly different. Now, I'm not talking about it. I'm talking about embracing non-sinful differences. Now, I'm not saying we should embrace everything that's different, right? There could be some things that, again, I think are violating this kind of commitment we have to each other. Not making central what should be central. But there are thousands of non-sinful differences and distinctions that we ought to be embracing fully, that we ought to be grabbing hold of. And I think we become a testimony to our world. We look different. Because then it says, what holds them together? Why do these things become things that they don't even have to pretend aren't there? They can fully see them, embrace them, know their differences, and still love and value that person fully. 
What makes them able to do that? Now I'm looking for the main thing. What really holds you together and binds you together? So you could say then, you could go on and say, well, okay, we value diversity and the sameness that connects us, and that's all great. But still within that diversity, there's kind of better and worse, right? There's kind of stronger and weaker. So we come back to those stories I had at the beginning. All those people would say, hey, we're glad that there's people here that are different than us, and that's a wonderful thing. We want difference in this church, and we're not saying get rid of these people. But we do kind of look at these other groups sometimes as a little bit less, a little bit weaker, a little bit, we're a little bit more spiritual. And that's kind of the issue that Paul's dealing with here at Corinth, because there is kind of that view of them. It's, okay, we're different, and God put us together. Okay, we get it. We ought to embrace that. But which gifts are the really good gifts, and which gifts are the you know, mediocre gifts, right? So we come back in verse 21 and read this. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. I said seem to be weaker. You didn't say are weaker. They seem to be weaker. They're indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. The God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should be equal should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. He says you ought to be there ought to be such an equality of value. You ought to so value each part that those parts that seem weaker, seem like they don't matter as much, seem like they're not honorable, you lift them up. You take special care of them. You make sure that they're treated as valuable as they should be. The ones that are easy to forget, lift them up. Remember how valuable they are. Matter of fact, look at each part with such a concern for each part that you literally feel what they feel. You enter this place we call empathy. You literally start feeling what they feel because you're so aware of them. Don't let those slide into a lesser place ever. Diversity absolutely matters. Sameness absolutely matters. But also what seems to matter is the sense of equal value. Every part absolutely matters. So, so if you come to the church, if you're part of a body of believers, maybe I think are part of a body of believers, but you're here. Uh, if you're part of a body of believers, and you want to start thinking to yourself, I don't matter that much, you know? And not always because people are treated back, because, you know, I just, I'm just not one of those people that has what's needed to lead, or has what's needed to do special things, or... You know, I mean, I, I want to be here because I value something from it, but I'm not really needed by them. I'm not that important to this body of believers. I would say, rethink that. First Corinthians 12, I think, argues, absolutely you are. Matter of fact, even if others don't notice how important you are all the time, if God placed you here, God has placed you here for a purpose. God has gifted you and enabled you to play a role here that absolutely matters. And it's a rule that won't always seem important to everybody looking. It absolutely matters. So if you want to dismiss your importance here, I think 1 Corinthians 12, Paul would say to you, don't think so. Your role matters. Your part matters. Invest and embrace. Whoever you are, whatever role you have, invest and embrace. Because your part absolutely matters. Now if you want to start thinking you're a little too important, you want to start thinking more highly of yourself than you should, Paul would again say to you, you're one part of the body. You're not the part. You're one part. Every single part matters. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. Don't think less of yourself than you ought to. 
it absolutely matters as part of this body. So let me end by coming back to my two stories. So coming back to my two stories, um, what would Paul say? How would you apply 1 Corinthians 12 to those two situations? And I would say to both of them, there is a sense where I, I understand we have differences. I understand we have different tastes and different likes and come from different backgrounds and different situations and different levels of maturity, all these different things. We have all these differences. I think Paul would say to them, those differences are there on purpose. God put them there. Embrace them. Now they may argue, oh, those are sinful distinctions. You know, this is actually a sinful issue. You know, that's, that's a lack of maturity to choose that or to choose that. That's the issue. And I'd still say, Actually, think hard about that. Really? Are these the issues that need to slide to the top of the list? Are these the ones that need to divide us? You sure? I, I tell couples this all the time in marriage counseling. There are some differences um, I think we ought to sit down and fight for, and I'll put a judgment to it. I'll tell you that one's wrong or that one's right. No problem with that. That ought to be a really small category of differences. Really small. If you're finding a lot of things sliding into that category, you ought to ask real hard. You ought to think real hard about it. You sure all those things are that important? You sure these aren't the things where, honestly, if you would simply embrace difference, if you would grab hold of it and say, you know what, we get to be different. You get to be someone who's not like me. In fact, I don't want you to just be allowed to have it. I hope you will be someone who's not just like me. I hope you be. God made you to be. Fulfill the role he gave you. Live out that personality you've been gifted with. Be the person you are here. Because we're better if you have that kind of diversity and that kind of distinction. We're better. I love in this church. It's one of the reasons I've been here for 20-some years. One thing I love about this church, I love some of the diversity of this church. Now, we're not diverse in every way, but I love some that we have. Some of the age diversity that we have. I love some of the denominational diversity we have here. Church, people come from so many different denominations and so many church backgrounds. I love that about this place. I love some of the educational differences, some of the social economic differences that we have. I love that. I think it's part of what makes us who we are. That instead of figuring out a way to kind of minimize it, our goal becomes how do we embrace that? Make up who we are, love it. And, and show the world that because we are one in the body of Christ, because we have that sameness. This stuff isn't like we have to hide from it or ignore it. It's fine. We can embrace it. Sometimes it's even uncomfortable. So what? It's just not the most important stuff. It matters most. We are in Christ. We are His body. That's the central thing. So let me pray. Father, I do pray that your spirit would give us wisdom to, to look in our own hearts and see those things that we we sometimes treat as weaker or lesser that it's just not the way you see it. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see the people around us, the people you've placed in our life, and understand how, how we are better, a better body. We're better as individuals because they're there. I pray, Father, you'd help us to be a testimony to the world around us because in our difference, Father, even when it's kind of scary and threatening or confusing, that we find a way to go through it be more with it because of the fact that you've drawn us together. You've placed us in this body together. And bless the name. Amen.